We'll be back in 1 Samuel again, but I want to read from Philippians 2. Beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I do again um, just thank you for all that you've revealed in your word to us of yourself. And Lord, we have um, much to be grateful for. But God, we know that your, your heart's desire is not only that we would know the truth, but we would walk in it, God. That our lives would be brought into conformity to that of your Son, the one who loved you, and obeyed you, and never did his own will, but made himself completely available to you, for you to live in and through him for your own glory. And I pray, God, that that your work would be accomplished in us, even as it was in him, and that you'd use this time of looking at your word, Lord, to just to bring us into that um, intimacy with you, a walk of faith and obedience out of love that you long for. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you can turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 13. Um, When dealing with with, um, Old Testament historical narrative, often passages um, are kind of, you have to take them in chunks um, because of the of this theme that's being um, expressed or, the, or just the, the subject that's being expressed. And so we looked at chapters 9 through 12 last Sunday, and in this Sunday, chapters 13 to 15 really form a unit. And in chapter, this is, these are, I have to say from the outset, this is kind of the down, downward slope now in the life of Saul. Started out okay, um, and um, God's hand was clearly on his life, and God... Um, had had um, a purpose to make him king, um, and yet he is quickly turning away from the Lord. Reminds me of a proverb um, that Solomon wrote and said that a man is tested by the praise that comes to him. And Solomon seems to be a man that was able to maintain some humility, a low profile in his own heart, until he was elevated to be king, and it quickly went to his head. Um, he couldn't handle it. And, and here in chapter 13, 14, and 15 is really the downfall of Solomon, I mean Saul, very, very rapidly. Chapter 13 starts with a problem. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. The problem is a textual problem. Um, we, as, as you all know, our copies of the Bible we have are, are, are not based on an original that anybody has ever seen. We have some excellent copies, and we can have, have absolute confidence in our um, Old and New Testament Bibles that we have. But there are a few places where we don't really know what the original said. Never affects any doctrine. No doctrine is in question whatsoever with any of those question marks that we have. For example, this verse. It literally reads, Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. So there's some numbers that are missing there. And, and so we put it together, and we know from the New Testament, because of a, of a statement that Paul made, that Saul reigned for 40 years. Now that may have been a round number. Maybe it was actually 42 years. And so some of your translations for the second number will say 42 years instead of 32 years. I don't know why the New American Standard says 32, because he did not reign 32. He reigned 40-some-odd years. It may have been exactly 40. It may have been the round, uh, may, that may be a round number from 42. And we know that he died in battle, and that he would have been, um, he was already a married man with a son 
who was just about old enough to go into battle himself when he became king. Speaking of Jonathan, who's introduced in this chapter. And so it may be that he was, had reigned two years when this battle took place. It maybe is what this statement is saying. And, but we don't know what it's saying about how old he was when he began to reign. The problem is, when he died in battle, Saul, he would have been a very old man. Because Jonathan, in this chapter, is going to war with him, and he's probably only two years into his kingdom. Jonathan would have been at least 20. And so that means Saul was at least 40 when he began to reign as king. Late 30s, early 40s. That means he was as old as 80 when he died in battle because he was 40 year, he reigned for 40 years. So he was in his late 70s, maybe 80 when he was killed in battle. And his son Jonathan, who died at his side in battle, was in his late 50s, maybe 60 when he died in battle. Which means that David and Saul and Jonathan were not the same age as we typically think. David was probably 20 years younger, 10 to 20 years younger, maybe even more than Jonathan. And so the Bible speaks of them having the same heart. It doesn't speak of them having the same age. There was a quite a bit of age difference between David and his friend Jonathan. So that's just a bit of uh, background here. So it says, verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill, in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gabeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people. Remember, when he first went to battle against Jabesh Gilead, he had 330,000 people. He's dismissed them all except for these 3,000. He seems to want to concentrate on the hill country, which was his native area, the area of Benjamin, to drive out the Philistines from there. And so he thinks that he can accomplish that with this small army of 3,000 men. Jonathan, verse 3, it says, smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in that area of Gabeah. And then the Philistines hear about it, and it begins um, an, a continual conflict that will last throughout the entire 40 years of Saul's reign. And so, um, as we move through this, it says that um, the Philistines start to come, come against Saul. Saul's th um, 3,000 people that he had began to flee. And so Saul felt like, I have got to do something here to, to, to go into battle before all my people have left. So verse 8, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel... But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him, the few that he had. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. And it came about, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, that behold, Samuel came. Bad timing. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But he's gotten caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Okay? The king has no business functioning as a priest. And even though he's the first king, he would have understood this. And this is why Samuel had said, wait for me to get there. Samuel could function as a priest. The king could not. And so the king is violating, transgressing the boundaries that have been established for him. And we're beginning to see a spirit of rebellion. And I, I tell you, we, as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we're going to see an increasing spirit of rebellion. And it typically begins in these what seem to be little things where we just broaden the boundaries. And we are constantly seeing this. As, as I read, read the book of Proverbs and I come across those verses that say, don't move the ancient boundary stones. I don't think they're talking about rocks in a field. I think the scripture is speaking about the boundary stones of morality. Yes, it pertains to property boundaries in a field, but there's much more going on than that. These ancient boundary stones of morality, and every generation pushes against them. But the older generation will wisely said, step in line or leave. And that's the way we used to be raised. You will follow my rules under my roof or you will go live somewhere else. 
you would not move the boundary stones. And today we say, well, that's not loving. We need to show some grace. And, and the stones are constantly being moved. And it's a spirit of rebellion that we are accommodating ourselves to. And we think it, act as though it makes no difference. Everybody needs to test the boundaries. It does make a difference. God is absolutely opposed to this rebellious spirit, as we'll see as we move through here. And so verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? It's a big deal to him. What have you done? We just offered a few sheep and, 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 and cows. So, no, it's a big deal. You have violated the boundaries that God has set up. And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come, so obviously it's Samuel's fault, within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. Lie, lies, and lies. This is about cowardice. This is not about the, a brave initiative. You know, and it's amazing how cowardice can, can, can be so deceiving as to make us think that we're actually doing the right thing. He was fearful for his life, for his reputation, and for the Philistines gaining territory. And out of fear, he did this. Not out of principle, not out of a sense of what is right. And that's why he had to force himself because he knew it was wrong. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. So there's an equivalency between Samuel's word and God's word. And violating my word, you violated God's word because I'm the prophet of God. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And by the context here, because this is a contrast to Saul, we know what a man after God's own heart looks like. The opposite of what Saul is displaying. There is no impertinence. There is no impatience with the will of God. There's no redefining. There's no clipping the edges. There's no moving the boundary stones. A man after God's own heart is a man who says, yes, Lord. What do you want? That's what I'll do. No argument, no debate, just yes, Lord. There is one man who is truly after the heart of God, and that is the Son of God. Where God said concerning his Son, Behold, my son, in whom I am well pleased. Why did the father say that? Jesus says, I never came to do my own will. I did not come out of heaven to do my will, Jesus said. I came down out of heaven to do the will of my father who is in heaven. And the father says, Behold, my son, in whom I am well pleased. We all love our children, but we're not always well pleased with our children. So my little grandsons, y'all couldn't all see it this morning during the singing, but he's moving further and further away, hiding behind the pillar, smiling, looking back at us, and I was going, come back, and he'd smile and just move a little further or turn his head away, cute as a bug's ear, whatever that means, but there's Rebellion. And that isn't cute. And that doesn't mean he needs to be swatted or anything, but that's, that is what parental responsibility is about, is to note it, say it's not cute. It may look cute right now, but the very principle of rebellion is abhorrent to God. It has nothing to do with the life of Christ. And so parents will, if they love their children, the scripture says, will discipline them. And if they hate their children, they won't discipline them. And so Saul is getting disciplined. Because God loves him. Can't put up with this. You're making excuses. You're justifying yourself. You're blaming other people. 
instead of simply taking responsibility for your own rebellious disobedience. So God's going to find a man who won't do that, a man after God's own heart, a man who is submissive, yielded, obedient. Is it any wonder that the main imperatives of the most theological book we have in the New Testament, the book of Romans, comes down to one word, yield. Did you ever think about that? It is the greatest theological treatise that Paul ever wrote. Eleven chapters of solid theology. And it's all summed up pointing to one imperative. Yield. Yield. That's what salvation is about. Taking a rebel and making him an obedient child of God. One who yields his will to another. So in chapter 14... Jonathan is the central figure again at the beginning of this chapter. And now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other yonder side. So this Jonathan, man, you've got to love him. And, and it is interesting, again, we see in Scripture that the father and the sons don't always have a lot of bearing on each other. And so the first two men mentioned in 1 Samuel, Eli and Samuel, produced children that are not like them, rebellious to the core. And then we've got a Saul who himself is rebellious to the core, and he produces a son who loves God with all of his heart, man of faith, yielded to the Lord. And this Jonathan's going, why are we sitting around? Man, God wants to do something here. He's got one man with him. His armor bearer. And obviously this armor bearer loved him. And he says, why don't we go over? And the armor bearer says, just you and me. But hey, whatever you want to do, I'm with you. And so they start sneaking over to the Philistines. And the Philistines were up in this upper place and they see them and they start laughing at them. Oh, here come two of the Hebrews crawling out of one of their holes. Because a lot of the Jewish people were hiding out in the in holes. And so they see two coming up from the rocks. Oh, here come two crawling out of their hole. And so... And, the, and Jonathan says, listen, this is what's going to happen. Now they've spotted us. If they say, why don't you come on up here to us, then we'll know God's given us the battle. But if they say, you wait there while we come to you, then we'll go, we can't win this. Now you think that almost seems counterintuitive. Because the place, the better place to be is always the elevated ground. Anybody in military knows that. The high ground is what you want to hold. And so these guys have the high ground. And they're saying, come up to us, which is what you would expect a good warrior to say. I'm not going to give up the high ground. But they say, and so he says, if they say to come up to them, then we know the battle's ours. Right. That armor mirror was going, oh, my word, what have I gotten myself into? And so they and so like, come on up. And he goes, okay, just wait. And so here they come, crawling up that hill. And they finally get there. And a slaughter takes place. But listen to what Jonathan says. Verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who is carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Listen to this. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So this is a man who understood God. He has a personal relationship with God. And he knows God does not need numbers, and God is not impressed by numbers. He's God. He doesn't need us to even bring about victory. There's been plenty of times where God has brought about victory without a person raising their hands. And we see that in the book of Joshua. How did the walls of Jericho come down? Because they brought in their backhoes and their bulldozers, and they just walked around and they shouted. And God dropped the walls. God doesn't need an army. He's God. And Jonathan is a man who knows his God. Two of us, that's two more than God needs. He doesn't need anybody. We get so impressed with numbers as though somehow they're going to help God out. God doesn't need it. And so they, they go and they fight. And it says in verse 14... 
And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. That's impressive. Only one of them's got a sword. That's Jonathan. Because none of the Jewish people had any armor except for Jonathan and Saul. The Philistines had all the armor. They were the makers of iron, and nobody could come and even get their, their, their plows sharpened without coming to the Philistines to get it done. And so the armor bearer probably just has a stick. And with a stick and a sword, they kill 20 men armed to the teeth. It wasn't because they knew martial arts. It's because they knew their God. And they were trusting their God. And God empowered them to bring about this battle. And that is the only way to explain it. And then verse 15, God gives them a little help. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, probably an earthquake. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. And Saul's going, what's going on? And one of his lookouts said, there's a battle going on over there. And Saul said, quick, number everybody. See who's missing. And it came back, Jonathan and his armor bearer. And so Saul goes, let's run to the battle. And this is where, again, he should have waited and asked the Lord, talked to the Lord, sought the Lord. In fact, he was in the process of doing that, and he tells the priest, stop what you're doing. Let's just go to battle. Impetuous. And then he does this, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. you got to be kidding. We're going to fast in the middle of a battle all day long, and we're not going to eat a thing. Amazing. And the people become so famished and so faint that they can't even finish the battle. Saul thinks he's doing this for the benefit of himself, and it hurts everybody. Jonathan didn't hear about the curse, and he's going through a wooded area, and there happens to be honey on the ground. And so just quick, he sticks his staff, the end of his spear into it, and brings it up, and he licks some of that honey off, and immediately his eyes brighten, and he's charged up again. The batteries are charged, and he goes, Hey, guys, there's honey here. Get some honey. And the other soldiers go, Jonathan, didn't you hear what your dad said? He goes, What are you talking about? Your dad said if anybody eats anything today that he's cursed, he's going to die. And Jonathan says, My dad has troubled Israel today. So then, when they finally did stop to eat, they were so famished, it says in verse 31, that they struck down among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Hijalon, and the people were very weary. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil, and took sheep and oxen and calves, and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. All because of what Saul foolishly said. And they told Saul, saying, The people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each of you bring this ox or his sheep, his ox or his sheep, and slaughter it here and eat it. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Probably an indictment on him. He should have been coming to God before now. Sad. We're told at the end of the chapter that he had constant warfare with the Philistines to the very end of his life. At the end of the battle, um, he determines... Because God isn't answering him, it says in verse, at the end of verse 37, And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him that day. So he goes, uh-oh, something's wrong. So he cast lots to see who the problem is. And the lots fell on Saul and Jonathan. 
So he cast lots between the two of them, and the lot fell on Jonathan. And he looked at Jonathan and said, what have you done? And Jonathan said, I ate a little honey, and I must die. Wow. And Saul was going to kill his son. And the people intervened and said, no. We've won a great victory today. God has given a victory today because of Jonathan. He is not going to die. And so they intervened and saved Jonathan's life. This is not a good man, Saul. Started out well. But you just think his, his, his thinking is becoming twisted. His actions are self-centered. It's sad what's happened to this man. And we're not even close to where things are headed. Now in chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the word of the Lord. Okay? Now, you can can hear the, the emphasis here. The Lord sent me to anoint you as king. You didn't become king on your own. God made you king. I was the instrument. Now, listen to what God wants to say to you. And seven times... He's going to tell Saul, destroy every single Amalekite and their women and their children and their sheep and their goats, all their livestock. Seven times he's told him because Samuel seems to be understanding. This is a man who won't listen. You've got to tell somebody seven times to do something. That's about six times too many. This is a man who's not listening. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against me, him on the, on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, Slaughter it all. Now, we don't like that, understandably. I don't have a good answer for it. But I know this. Will not the God of this earth do what is right? Will not a just God act justly? There is no injustice in our God. I don't have to defend God. I don't have to explain God. Is this genocide? Sure looks like it. Every man, woman, and child, and every animal, slaughter them all. If that happened today, we would say it is wrong. Rightly so. But there is no nation today that is Israel. And even if Israel were to do this today, it would be wrong. But God was working through them in ways that we don't understand and, frankly, we don't have to understand. God could have explained himself here. But the point is, we are not owed an explanation. And it is the same spirit of rebellion that says, I am not going to accept, God, that this is even your inspired word unless you explain to me why you did what you did. And I'm telling you, there are lots of scholars who look at this and say, this is not God's word. Or will look at this and say, this is why we should not take God's word literally today. It's disturbing. Most of us as evangelical Christians, this is not to let God off the hook. He doesn't need to be let off the hook. But most evangelical Christians would believe that when a baby dies, or a child before whatever the age of accountability is dies, that that baby, that child goes to be with the Lord. But when it comes to passages like this, we see only injustice. When in fact, it may have been God showing mercy on some children who would have never, ever come to know God. And God knew that because of the parents and families that they were in. I have no doubt in God's wisdom that he knows there are are many 
there are peoples today on this planet that will, I mean, you can just take it to the bank. They are not going to indoctrinate their children, encourage their children, lead their children in the ways of God. As long as they're alive, it is never going to happen. There's no real good answer to that, but it's a fact. But God knows. And there have been times in history where entire societies have been bent on hell. And that's the truth of it. And God in his wisdom says, enough is enough. And he wipes them out. And the world's a better place for it. But he does not owe us an explanation. And God doesn't need to be let off the hook. He is a just and righteous God. So, was Saul obedient? Almost. Does almost count? (laughs) Only in horseshoes and hand grenades. Verse 9. Well, we should read verse 8. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. All but one. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they became judges of what ought to be destroyed when God said everything is to be destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and he has not carried out my commands. Now I don't think this for a minute. I regret that I've made Saul king means that God's going, what was I thinking? I didn't know this was going to happen. God knew exactly what was going to happen. And God didn't make a mistake. But I think it does point to the free will we have before God. And Saul made his choice. It didn't have to be this way. Samuel's already told him, you could have had your kingdom established if you had not acted the way that you did. This is a man in rebellion against God. And God is regretting the decisions that that man is making. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. Wow. Then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen it? Remember, Samuel is the Nazarite who has not cut his hair since he was born. And by this time, he is old and gray and probably stooped over. And he is shuffling along, this gray-haired, long-haired, hippie man with hair down almost to his ankles. And he is a, not only a sight to behold, his presence is fearsome. Because this is a man that hears God and obeys God, unlike Saul. And here he comes, shuffling up to Saul. And Samuel came to Saul, verse 13, and said, and he said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Really? Unbelievable. Was it one of the Shakespeare characters? Thou protestest too much? <laughs> and that's what we're seeing here. He's defending himself before any, there's even yet a need to. But Samuel said, Oh, you have carried out the command of the Lord? And this guy probably can't even see very well. And so he doesn't claim to see anything, but he does claim to be hearing. What then? Is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? (laughs) Really? You've obeyed God? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, 
For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, right? But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let, just stop, just stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Speak. And Samuel said, is it not true that you are little in your own eyes? You were made the, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? See, he's thinking it's reasonable. It's God that was unreasonable in Saul's mind. How is it right for God to condemn all these people and all these animals? It's God that's unreasonable. It's God that's being evil. And Samuel says, you're the evil one. You didn't do what God said. Verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Unbelievable. I remember having a student in my office. We've been having things stolen among the student bodies many years ago. And I'm not real smart. It's hard for me to figure out who's doing stuff like that. But I thought, okay, I have a pretty good idea who I think it is. So I'm just going to, with every opportunity to mix students around, we're going to mix them around so that I can keep my eye on this one guy. And so I had this one guy in three different dorms. And in each of those dorms, money went missing. So I pretty much narrowed it down. And then he even broke into a staff home, crawled through a window, and took a big thing full of quarters or something. So I call him in, and I sit him down. And I lay out all the evidence that I have. Nope, didn't do it. Lay it out again. Nope, didn't do it. Lay it out again. Nope, didn't do it. And finally he goes... You got me. I did it. And I go, why would you finally confess? And he goes, clearly you got the goods on me. I was going, unbelievable. I mean, he, from the first confrontation, he could have said, oh, man, I, I've got a problem. I don't, I'm so sorry. This is a pastor's kid. And he's going, I, I, I'm ashamed of myself. He could have done I'm ashamed of myself. I'm so glad that I finally got exposed. I've been hoping, I've had that kind of conversation with people. I am so glad that I've been found out. I needed to be discovered. There's hope for that person. But for the one who is constantly making excuses, even God can't do anything with that person. And I say that seriously. Because God will not violate our will. And if we refuse to respond to him, God just has to take his hands off. Romans 1, he hands them over. I did obey the voice of the Lord. And I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, and the choicest things devoted to, devote, to destruction. To sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And every time it's your God, it's never my God, our God. And Samuel stops him again. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Which is more important to God? Your ritual? Because you've done the ritual. You have made the sacrifices, and even when you don't even wait on me to make the sacrifice, this is a man who's all about the form and not about the reality. There is not a heart relationship of obedience with Saul, at least at this point in his life. Does God care about the ritual when your heart is far from him? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, I think this is one of the most significant verses in all the Bible. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, or the King James says, witchcraft. 
and insubordination, or the King James says stubbornness, is as iniquity and idolatry. It isn't a virtue to be stubborn. You realize that? I many times have been called stubborn. Maybe it's part of my German heritage or Irish heritage. I don't know. I've got trouble on both sides, if that's what it is. It's part of my Adamic heritage that we all have. We don't like to be told what to do, and we dig in. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And even when we yield, it's like the little boy said, I may be standing up on the outside, but I, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Because we're unyielded in our hearts. Stubbornness is not a compliment. Somebody called me stubbornly faithful. And I'm going, that is a backhanded compliment if I've ever heard one. Because those two words should never be used in the same sentence. A faithful person is not stubborn. And a stubborn person is not faithful. These are not virtues to be stubborn, to be insubordinate, to be rebellious. It's a sin of witchcraft, iniquity, idolatry. I did hear the whistle. So let me just make a couple points very quickly. How is it? I've thought about this a lot, and I will the rest of my life, I'm sure. In what sense is rebellion like witchcraft. I had a very disturbing encounter this week with a young girl waitressing at a restaurant. And I notice, because I'm on her left, beautiful rose tattoo on her left arm. I didn't notice what was on her the back of her right hand. And I'm having lunch with another man, and she comes over, and we start talking to her about her tattoos because we wanted to really talk to her about the Lord. And I hadn't seen the one on the back of her hand. And I've never seen anything like that. And I go, what is that? And she goes, you know, there's that, that board game where there's a thing that ha- sits on the board and you get it to move around? And I go, that's the Ouija board symbol? She goes, yeah, that's it. And I'm going, unbelievable. And I go, do you believe there's a God? And she said, yes, I do. And I said, do you believe there's a devil? She says, yes, I do. And I said, you know that board game is not God talking to you. So who's talking to you? And she goes, she gets sheepish. She goes, it's the devil. And I go, that's right. And I said, you don't need to go to the devil to get your questions answered. You can go to God. You can go to his word. And I said, his hill, we've got a lot of women up there your age. And any one of them would be glad to talk to you about God and his word. But you don't need to go outside of God to find out what God wants you to know. See, that's witchcraft, divination. It is trying to find information outside of the boundaries God has established. That is the spirit of witchcraft. That's, when you want to get down to it, it was witchcraft and divination when Adam took of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was rebellious. And he was saying, I'm going to seek knowledge, knowledge of good and evil in a way that God doesn't want me to get it. Does God not want us to have the knowledge of good and evil? No, he does. A little later on in Genesis, it says, God says, they have become like us, knowing the difference between good and evil, knowing good and evil. God is a God of truth. And you can't be with God, walk with God, and not know the difference between good and evil. So God's not wanting to withhold that knowledge from us, but God's wanting to be the source of that knowledge. And when we go outside of God to find the truth that God wants us to know, God says it's witchcraft. It's divination. It's not just mere curiosity. 
It is evil in the sight of God. Insubordination is just a refusal to submit. Rebellion is a refusal to listen, a refusal to obey. They aren't cute. They aren't desirable. It is witchcraft, idolatry, and iniquity. I can't think of uglier words. Idolatry, how? Because I'm saying, not God. I'll do this on my own. I don't need him to find out what I need to know in life. I can get it some other way. Idolatry, witchcraft, iniquity. Lest you think this is not you, I know it's me. I hope you don't think you're exempt. Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We are all Saul's. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, the same word that Samuel is using, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. On him who was obedient in all things. No deviation, not 1% disobedience and 99% obedience. In John 17, 4, Jesus says, I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He could have said, accomplished all that you told me to do. Not like Saul, who left one alive. We should read accounts like Saul and say, God, I am no different. I justify, I rationalize, I defend myself. I want to pat myself on my back for being mostly obedient. Say I'm more obedient maybe than other people are. It ought to convict us and bring us to Jesus, the only one who is fully obedient in all things. He's our only hope. But we should not deceive ourselves into thinking these matters are not big matters to God. God's word and a spirit and a, and, a, and a strict obedience to God can only happen, as I'm saying, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But it will make you appear simplistic perhaps even mindless, because you're not thinking and challenging what God has to say. You're just saying, yes, Lord. But I find my mind is more engaged when my mind has settled the most basic thing that I don't need to think about, obedience. As we'll see, the mind of Saul, the disobedient one, the rebellious one, is going to become all but insane. And we're living in a time where highly intelligent people are going, what is wrong with them? How can they think this way? And it isn't because of a lack of intelligence. It is because of a spirit of rebellion. It corrupts the very thinking and reasoning ability of the person. And you begin to yield to God, and you find yourself thinking better than people that are much smarter than you are. But we can choose to always be questioning God's word, which is the spirit of the devil who said to Adam, said to Eve, has God said? And we may appear smart and reasonable and less extreme and more balanced and more acceptable and less offensive and less divisive and shake hands with the devil the whole time. Okay, that is not the heart of Jesus. It is the Antichrist who is described as the man of lawlessness. It is the devil who is the rebellious one. It is those who crucified Jesus that Stephen said are stiff-necked 
and uncircumcised of heart, always, always resisting the Spirit of God. It is Jesus who said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that may look stupid. It may look foolish. But God is good. And his will is good, acceptable, and perfect. He doesn't always explain everything, but he doesn't need to. He wants us to yield to Jesus and that what is true of Jesus, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased, would be true of you and me. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you that only in Christ can we be obedient from the heart. That you have taken those who are sons of disobedience, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath, and you have made us your own children with a new heart, a heart of obedience. And I pray, God, that we would cherish what you have done for us in Jesus. And that whenever we see that spirit of rebellion rising up in our hearts, we would know that this is not anything that is small to you. It is iniquity, idolatry, and witchcraft. And that we would confess and not rationalize and turn from it to you. And I thank you, God, for this miraculous work of redemption that you are accomplishing in each of us. We pray that you would continue. We thank you that you will. And we long for that day, God, when all that is in us that is untrue of you would be stripped away as we stand before Jesus, having been made like him because we are with him. In Christ's name, amen.